Well, let's turn our attention now to the Word of God. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. No better place to start than in the very beginning. As you turn there, I'm going to begin this message in a rather peculiar way. I'm going to act out for you a play. The whole play, all by myself. But I will need your help. I'll need your help. You'll have to close your eyes and use your imagination as I describe things. So go ahead and close your eyes. It should be completely dark. And in this play, you've come to the playhouse and you've been escorted to your seat and you're sitting down and it is pitch black. The playhouse, the stage, everything is completely dark. You can't even see your hand in front of your face. It's so dark. And you're sitting there and you're wondering to yourself, well, when does the play start? But in reality, it's already started. And as you linger in the darkness, you linger in the darkness, suddenly you start to notice that there's a very dim light coming onto the stage. It's dim, but because it's so dark, you, you can see it. And the light is slowly getting brighter. And you start to make out that there's something on the stage. There's something on the stage, but you can't quite tell what it is. And the light gets a little bit brighter, and that thing on the stage is starting to come into focus. And as it does, you also begin to hear the sound of a baby crying. And the volume of the crying baby is now going up. And the baby's cries are getting louder and louder. The light is getting brighter and brighter. And you can finally discern, what is it on the stage? It's a pile of trash. It's a pile of garbage. Fully lit now. And the baby's cry is at full volume. When suddenly, there's a breath. The light goes out. The baby stops crying. And you're back in pitch black. And that's the end. That's the end of the play. You can go home now. That was Samuel Beckett's Breath. Written and performed off-off-Broadway in the 60s. And it's intended to evoke a little bit of laughter, but a lot of dread. The point is basically this. What are you? Who are you? What's the meaning of your life? You came from darkness and nothing. You will return to darkness and nothing. And in between, there's a little bit of sound. There's a lot of stuff. There's some crying, maybe some laughter. But then it will all go dark and it will all go quiet again. And what will have been the point? That's the point of Samuel Beckett's breath. Now, you may say to yourself, come on, who pays attention to off-off-Broadway plays from over, more than 50 years ago, right? Well, let me tell you the ending of the 2008 Blue Sky Studios' Horton Hears a Who. You know Horton Hears a Who. You've surely read it. Some of you are young enough, your parents read it to you, and you read it to your children. Horton Hears a Who. It's the story of 
an elephant, big blue elephant, lives in the jungle, and he discovers a flower, and on the flower is a speck of dust, and he discovers that on that speck of dust is an entire civilization. Now that civilization did not know that it existed on a speck of dust, on a flower, in the jungle. Didn't know that until Horton told them. Now, Horton is the only one who knows about this civilization on the speck of dust, on the flower. He can't see them, but he can hear them. I suppose because he's got big ears, he can hear better than the other animals. And he takes it upon himself to protect the speck of dust because he wants to protect the civilization on the speck of dust. And all the other animals, of course, think he's crazy, and so that's where the, the plot and the hilarity and the shenanigans ensue as other animals chase Horton through the jungle and Horton's trying to protect the speck of dust and the civilization all along. And he say he's able to preserve the, the civilization. They become good friends. And the main character in the civilization on the speck of dust says to Horton, what will we do without you? And Horton says, I'm always around. Just then, at the end of the movie, the camera starts to pan out so you can see more of the jungle and pan out further till you can see the larger setting of the jungle until you can pan out. You can't even see the jungle anymore, but you can see the earth and continues to pan out further and further as the earth gets smaller and smaller in space. And then the narrator asks, what if we were just careening aimlessly through space on a speck of dust? Implication? We are. And there's no big blue elephant taking care of us. That's for children. That's for children. You see... We're living at a time when through the artistic media that come at us, whether you go to avant-garde plays or whether you just watch cartoon movies with your children, we are being told over and over again that we are small, we are brief, and we are likely meaningless in the larger vastness of space and time. But the scriptures, praise God, have a different interpretation, a different understanding of these things. And so in Genesis 1, we're going to see an awe-inspiring story, a different story, that will get at these same ideas. So let's go ahead and read our two verses for this morning. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. God has just created everything out of nothing and organized the created world into land and sea, created species, and set everything in order in the created habitat for humanity. And then we read this. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. 
My goal for today is that you will rediscover, or maybe discover for the first time, a profound awe towards all people because they are made in the image of God with identity and meaning. And that's going to make up the outline for today's message. Identity in creation, meaning in creation, and identity and meaning in new creation. Identity in creation, meaning in creation, and identity and meaning in the new creation. So let's get after this phrase to begin with, with identity and creation. God says, let us make man in our image. And then it concludes, in the image of God, he made them. What does that mean? What does that mean? But that God has made us intentionally to represent him and to represent his sovereignty through us. That God has made us intentionally, intentionally that we would represent him and his sovereignty through us. And what that means is, from the word go, every human being has an identity and has a purpose, has meaning, exactly as we are created. Every human being has an identity and a meaning exactly as we are created. And this is a critical message for our time because there is great confusion in our world today. To answer the question, what does it mean to be a human being? Who am I? Why do I exist? What am I? These are haunting questions that hum under the hood of everyone's mind. Only, however, few of us have taken the effort to lift up the hood to look underneath to find out what makes these questions hum. Or to put it another way, to ask these questions. What am I? Who am I? And why do I exist? And if we don't ask that question, if we don't ponder the answer, then we will simply imbibe from the culture whatever these counter stories are telling us. Samuel Beckett, Horton Hears a Who, or wherever else they may come from. And so what does it mean to be created in the image of God but to represent who he is and his sovereignty through us? Now we, in the Christian tradition, have thought long about what this means, to be created in the image of God. What are the attributes of God that we reflect more than the, or entirely in distinction from the animal kingdom? The first is the capacity for love. The capacity for love. Human beings have, from, the, from their childhood and throughout their lives, a capacity for love, a desire to receive love, and a desire to give love. These are not attributes that we see in the animal kingdom. Lions, butterflies, ostriches, they operate on instinct. They don't have a particular capacity for community and love for one another. Another attribute of God that human beings reflect that animals don't is a judicial sentiment. A judicial sentiment. What does that mean? That means an innate understanding of what is right and what is wrong. We don't have to be taught to steal is wrong, to kill is wrong, to murder is wrong, but to help somebody else in their time of need is good. We have a judicial sentiment because God has a judicial sentiment. We have rationality, rationality, the ability to articulate complex ideas on a reasonable level. 
And I hope this sermon is an exercise exactly in that, that I'm articulating words and sentences and communicating with you, and you can understand if I communicate clearly. Creativity. Creativity. We'll come back to that. Speech. The ability to put into words and to write them down and to communicate them to others is far different than the basic forms of communication that animals make. And so to be created in the image of God is not to merely be an extension of the animal kingdom, but to be unique in so many ways. Now, every worldview, religion, and philosophy has some kind of understanding of who is God, what is wrong with humanity, and what is the solution. Who is God? What is humanity? What's wrong with humanity? And then what is the solution? And in our world today, as I mentioned, if we don't think deeply about these things, if we don't let the scriptures inform us, then we will simply adopt those worldviews and those stories from the cultural forces around us. And I can break that down, I believe, into two basic stories. Here are the two basic stories coming at us from various channels in our society. Number one. There is no God. There is no God. The only thing that exists is matter, stuff. This is all there is. And so if that's true, if all there is is material things in the world, then what are you? What are you? You are the collection of material things in the universe that have haphazardly come together by blind, unintentional forces of the universe in an evolutionary stream to, to create pretty complex, but nonetheless, strictly material animals. So there's no purpose for evolution. There's no goal for evolution. The universe could have created four-legged reptilian species to dominate the earth. And in fact, once upon a time, it did. And now it's created bipedal mammals to control the world. But it didn't have to be this way. And so we've evolved haphazardly. And the main problem with humanity is suffering. We don't, we don't like that. We don't want suffering. We want comfortable lives. And so the great problem with the world is how can we alleviate as much suffering as possible? We're unable to do that because we don't know enough about the world. Therefore... Education and knowledge, particularly scientific knowledge, is the great savior of humanity. We can alleviate the maximum amount of suffering if we can simply know more about the world and develop enough medicines and drugs and psychiatric treatments. And so we can conquer the world through our education. That's the first story that we're being told. The second story ironically, is the exact opposite. The first story is there is no God. The second story goes like this. You're all gods. You're all gods. You all have some kind of spark of divinity inside of you. And you just need to find the path to light that spark and to bring forth the divine out of your existence. How do you light that spark? How do you bring forth the divine from deep within be true to yourself. You heard that before? Be true to yourself. Do not let culture, 
history, tradition, family, religion, education, customs. Don't let them hold you back. Don't let them herd you into some kind of pin where you have to behave in a certain way. Rather, break free from those historical restraints and be true to yourself, create yourself, discover yourself through your own meaning-making, identity-making process. Now, I would argue that that is the cruelest thing you can tell children. That your identity and your meaning are somewhere deep inside of you, and you got to figure it out on your own. And if I help in any way or instruct you in any way or teach you or guide you in any way, I'm harming you so that you're not true to yourself. But those are the two stories. That there is no God and you're haphazardly, randomly, meaninglessly created and you have this temporary existence before you go back into the nothingness or you have a divine fuse inside of you that you can light through your own independent self-meaning-making, identity-making. And what happens when people can't find their meaning and can't discover their identity through those processes? The answer is a lot of carnage. But what a gloriously different story Genesis tells us. You're not God, but there is a God. And he has made you with intentionality and purpose. Intentionality and purpose. To be like him. Now, in verse 27, when Moses summarizes what God just did, verse 26 God speaks, let us make man in our own image. Verse 27, Moses summarizes in poetic form what just happened. So, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Now, right there, Moses could say, rationally, or with the ability to speak, with the capacity for love. There are all kinds of attributes of God that Moses could comment on. What is the first attribute of humanity reflected in his image bearers? Do you see it there? Male and female, he created them. The first attribute of image bearers that Moses comments on is maleness and femaleness, which means God has intentionally created men and women. Maleness and femaleness are God's ideas. And in Genesis 31, just a few verses later, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. The assessment of God on his image bearers, when he notices the intentional effects of creating them in his image as male and female, he says, that is very good. Now, what is it? What is the attribute of God that's coming out here? I'm not arguing that God is both male and female or something like that. But what we see here is that within the one God, we already see something of the plurality within God. We will learn from the rest of the scriptures. It's not all right here, but the rest of the scriptures will reveal what Drew has already commented on this morning. That within the one God, there is a plurality of persons. 
Three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Distinct in their personalities, but one in their deity. And so what we see here is, when God creates one image bearer, humanity, as the singular image-bearing creature of God, he creates within his image bearers distinctions, plurality, men and women. And the implications for this for gender and sex are huge. Neither men nor women are better. Neither men nor women are more the image of God, but rather collectively Humanity bears the image of God. Let me put it this way. Imagine for a moment that God had made only men. Then humanity would bear a little bit less the marks of the image of God. Or put it another way, what if God had made only women? Then humanity, in toto, would bear a little bit less the image of God. But rather, maleness and femaleness are the intentional designs for diversity and plurality within the one species that bears the image of God. So that together, male and female, men and women, comprise the image of God. Maleness and femaleness, therefore, are not problems to be fixed. They're not limitations to be transcended. They are intentionally, intentionally forethought design of God for his image bearers to glorify him and thrive in his world. This has implications, of course, for marriage. The marriage is designed to be between one man and one woman. Distinct genders coming together to form one union. Again, representing something of the plurality of God within his image bearers. And so, we hold these positions on gender, sex, and marriage not because they're conservative, but because they're biblical. Because they're biblical. We hold these positions on gender, sex, and marriage not because they're conservative, and we just want to preserve old ways, but because they're biblical. And we want to be good, faithful disciples of Jesus who speaks to us and instructs us through his word. And we want to hear Jesus and believe the things that he teaches us. And so to blur the lines between men and women or to intentionally break them is not just an affront to humanity and nature, but to God himself. But to the contrary, to recognize and revel in them is to the glory of God. This bears as well on issues of ethnicity and culture today and race relations. All people are made in the image of God. All people are made in the image of God. And therefore, all people contain equal value and worth, identity and meaning before God and in the eyes of each other. We have this teaching here in Scripture. It's not new. It's not trendy that all human beings are the intentional creations of God. 
with said identity and meaning already in the image of God. Which means God intends, God intends some people to be black and some people to be white. He intends some to be Asian and some American. He intends some to be Polish and some to be Peruvian. He intends some to be Navajo and some to be Nicaraguan. None are wrong. All are right. Because, again, God has said it is very good. So if all are equal and valuable with identity and meaning in God's eyes, all have value with identity and meaning in our eyes. And the church should be the place where that commitment shines the brightest. Because we have these convictions from the scriptures, not because they're new or trendy, not because they've suddenly appeared on this thing called social media, but because they're ancient and they are biblical. And so the common concern for racial equality is ours, not because it's popular on social media, but because it's biblical. And so to ignore the suffering and the well-being of anyone is not just callous towards the brotherhood of man, It's an affront to the very image of God. But to love all is to give glory to God. And so the next time you're in a discussion about racial justice, social justice in America, and it won't be long before you are, you can ask your interlocutor, you can ask your neighbor, your colleague, your cousin, why do you care about these things? Why are matters of race and justice so important to you? Why are they so important to everybody else? Why do you think everybody's talking about this these days? 19 times out of 20, you'll be shocked. Your, your, your conversation partner will be shocked. Say, well, it's obvious, isn't it? It's, it's, it's common sense that people should be treated fairly. At which time you can ask them, if it's such common sense, why is it so uncommon that we would treat people fairly or well? You see, if you can dig down into the root of why people are concerned about these things, you might be able to get to those first principles and ask, be able to answer the question, do you want to know why I think it's important? Do you want to know why I think these matters are important? At which time you might be able to get away from headlines and gotcha phrases and get to the image of God. I believe everyone's created in the image of God with an intentionality and a purpose, a meaning and an identity. And so because I believe in God, I therefore believe in certain things in humanity, in the image of God. And so from the beginning, because we are made in the image of God, we have identity as the image bearers Male and female, black, white, red, and green. So if that's what our identity is in the image of God, what is the meaning of our lives? What is the purpose? Why should I get out of bed in the morning? Why do I live here and now? What should I do with my life? In Genesis 1, 26 and 27, right after it is said that Humanity is made in the image of God, male and female, he created them. Verse 28 says, And God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. 
It's interesting that to have dominion, to subdue, and to fill the earth is exactly what God just did. Did he not just create and organize the sky and the land, the sea, and he filled it. He filled the earth with all kinds of species and put them in their proper place. He put them in the sky, put them in the ground, put them in the earth. He even intentionally made the little creeping things that creep upon the ground, little, little bugs. So God made all these things, and then in creating us in the image, in his own image, he functionally says, you take over now. You take over. You continue to organize and to fill. In other words, you are now handed the responsibilities to be creative and to be stewards of what God has made. The meaning of your life is to be creative and to care for God's creation, bearing his image. In other words, to contribute to the creation of culture to improve human thriving. Let me give you an illustration of what I mean. A few years ago, my sons and I went to see the IMAX, uh, I think it was called Wales, I think it was simply called Wales, down by the place that does IMAX next to Victory Field, right? And so we're watching this movie, and uh, you know, whales are the biggest creatures on the planet. The blue whale is the biggest, the biggest animal, and all the other whales come, come close to the blue whale. So the biggest creatures. And you know what they eat? <laughs> they eat the smallest fish and krill. Do you know what krill is? Krill is smaller than shrimp. Shrimp are called shrimp because they're so shrimpy. You understand? And krill are even smaller. And so you got these huge animals that eat the smallest creatures. Ergo, they must do what? They must eat a lot of them. So how do huge animals eat such small things and continue to survive and thrive and grow even bigger and have more baby whales? They don't eat them one by one. Here's what they do. They spread out over hundreds of miles, and then they communicate to each other through clicks and what sound like yawning sounds through the waters, and those sounds travel over hundreds of miles to communicate with the other whales. And when one of the whales finds a school of fish or a swarm of krill, they'll send out the signal and the other whales will come along. And so they communicate with each other over vast distances to gather where the food is. And then they do this. They swim in a circle beneath the school of fish or swarm of krill. They swim in a circle beneath, blowing air bubbles out, small air bubbles, as they go. And so they create a wall of air bubbles around the fish or krill so they can't get out. So now the fish and the krill are trapped inside the air bubbles. The whale will swim underneath, open up its mouth, come up and grab as much as he can, and he's gotten his dinner for the day. That's just amazing that these huge creatures communicate, have some kind of mechanism to work together to trap the fish, eat them all, and then they'll do it again. The next whale will get his mouth full, and then they'll clear the place out of fish and krill and go on their way. When I saw that, I, just, I couldn't believe how sophisticated their communication and method were for eating their food every day. But that is nothing compared to paper and pen. 
You understand? The ability to cultivate from the world, from plants and trees, and put together paper, and to create ink, and then to put one's thoughts and ideas down in intelligible words, and pass them on to the next generation to share with them ideas and technologies so that subsequent generations can take those ideas and technologies and continue to improve them is far more sophisticated and impressive than even the way the whales eat. To say nothing of controlling fire or refrigeration or the ability to control the temperature in a room. You see, for all of the intrigue in the natural kingdom, humanity has transcended all of that with its ability to create, to draw from the world and make things like paper and pencil or refrigeration or cups to gather food together. And so we are called to be creative in all the ways that we live and to make things, gathering the raw materials from the world. Now you may say to yourself, well, that's great for some people, but I'm not creative. You know, I don't, I don't make music or I don't design. I'm, I'm, I'm not an architect. I don't paint or I'm not creative. I would argue you are creative. You are creative. Every single human being, simply by being made in the image of God, has a creative impulse. Consider what you do when you make dinner. You bring together raw materials, put them together in particular proportions, and make something entirely new that wasn't there 30 minutes, or in my case, an hour earlier. Or consider something as simple as peanut butter and jelly. Peanut butter and jelly sandwich, something as simple as that. What are you doing when you make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich? You're taking peanut butter, which used to be in a bean in a field far, far away, grown, cultivated, and harvested by somebody else, transported over a great distance, mashed up, added oils and sugars and these kinds of things, jarred, transported again to another location, stored on a shelf, and then you came to the grocery store and bartered for it with something called money, again, a cultural artifact only those made in the image of God use, so that you can now have it. And then you take something really sophisticated, a knife. Yes, a knife. You should marvel at knives. No other creature brings together metal so they can scoop out their peanut butter and put it on bread which used to be a grain in a field somewhere else, grown, cultivated, and harvested by somebody else, transported a great distance, put together through, you know, mixed up and, and, and stirred up and put in the oven, and out comes bread. And then there's jelly with the fruit that somebody else grew, cultivated, and harvested, transported over. You used your knife again. You put it all together. You have been, you've done something that no other creature can possibly imagine just by making a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And so you are creative. You're creative in your homes. You're creative in your jobs. This is how you should think of your job, that I am contributing something through my creative capacities to the improvement of society and the thriving of humanity. And so are you a mechanic? 
People need the cars fixed. You are therefore using your creative capacities to serve humanity and cultivate and steward the earth. Are you a lawyer? People need legal services. Are you a teacher? People need to be educated. You're using your creative, God-honoring capacities that no other creature has to improve society and glorify God through that creativity. We're even creative in our recreations and our, and, and our hobbies. Has anyone here done the night ride downtown? Somebody must have done the night ride. So like me, you're disappointed that it's been canceled the last few years. The night ride is a time when a whole bunch of bicyclists light up their bikes and go for a ride through the city at 11 p.m. at night. It happens in the middle of the summer, and it's been canceled because of COVID the last, last few years. Well, my sons and I, we really wanted to do the night ride. So we got out our own lights, we carted charted a course through the neighborhood, and we, we rode around at 11 p.m. one night just because we wanted to ride our bikes on the streets, in the dark, under the stars. Again, there's no other creature that brings together asphalt, rubber, metal, batteries, lights, just to have fun. Just to have fun. All of these things give glory to God the Creator who made us in His image to exercise our creativity like Him as an emblem of His greater sovereignty and glory. Only image bearers are able to do that. But there's a catch. There's always a catch. There's always a catch. Humanity also has great capacity and creativity for sin. We're also very creative in the way we invent evil and the way we steward the earth for our own selfish ends. And so while we're creative in our homes, while we make peanut butter and jelly, there is also something called domestic violence. While we're creative in our jobs doing good things for others, there are also evil websites, drugs, weapons that we've learned how to make. We use our jobs as opportunities to defraud other people. Even our hobbies. We use our hobbies and our recreations as ways to hide and sanitize our sin. And so while we have these wonderful attributes from God to be creative and to steward his world in, in ways that is just unimaginable for those who do not bear the image of God, we've also found ways to rebel against God. And this is what we call sin. This is what we call sin. And the consequence for our sin is loss of control. Loss of control. We should be able to creatively steward the world as men and women working together perfectly, as well as God has. But because we go our own way, we rebel against our Creator, we break His good moral laws. Remember, I talked about judicial sentiment. I like to turn away from that in so many ways. We have therefore lost control. Case in point is the COVID 19 pandemic. As God's image bearers, we ought to be able to control and manage that. But we can't. But we can't. The ultimate loss of control, though, is death. It's death. If we had it under our control, every single one of us would choose to live forever. We do not want to die. 
We're afraid of death. And our inability to preserve our own lives is a consequence of our rebellion against God. And so his image bearers are doomed to die. This, then, is the problem with humanity. Because of our sinfulness, we will die. Though God made us in his image to be upright and righteous before him and therefore live. You see the problem? God, however, will not be denied. He will not abandon his plans. He will indeed redeem the world through a man, the man Jesus Christ. Turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. If you're following along, turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. If we're all made in the image of God with identity and meaning, by being made in the image of God, the problem then is we have used these good attributes of being made in the image of God to rebel against God and invoked his wrath upon us. The consequence for our sinfulness is therefore death. But Colossians chapter 1 tells us that God has another man, the God-man, the man Jesus Christ, to accomplish his purposes for humanity. To accomplish his purposes for humanity. We read this in Colossians 1, verse 15. Colossians 1:15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, whether visible or invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Meaning he was not created because everything was created through and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Do you hear that there in verse 15? Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the new man, the new humanity, that through his life, his perfect life, he would demonstrate what it truly means to be, to live a life in the image of God. He never sinned. And so when he dies on the cross, he doesn't die for his own sins. He dies for the sins of his people. And then equally, verse 18, he is the firstborn from the dead. After three days after Jesus died, he was raised back to life. And so through Jesus, the new man, the God-man, fully God, fully man, mystery of mysteries, he has solved our two problems. If sinfulness is our problem, he has atoned for our sins by his death. And if death is the consequence, he has reversed the effects of death through his resurrection. And now he unites us to him so that we might live in a new way, empowered by his Holy Spirit to again submit our creative capacities to the glory of God. And therefore, better than before, not perfectly, we might use those God-given, God-image-bearing attributes to his glory and the good of others. The church, therefore, is the vanguard of the new creation, the new humanity in Christ that understands its identity and meaning both in creation and in recreation. 
When Jesus was raised, he unleashed a power into the world, resurrection power, the gift of the Holy Spirit to give us new capacities to live in this new way. And this is the story that needs to be said and sung and rehearsed in this place and in our homes. And I would argue that for every counter story that the world throws at us, whether it's in headlines or plays or movies or TV shows or wherever you find these counter narratives, this story, the story of creation in God's image and redemption through Jesus Christ needs to be told twice as much to offset the effects of such narratological influences on ourselves and on our children. If you're not a believer here today, I wonder what you think of this. I wonder what you think of these Christians who believe that they're made intentionally by God for his glory and for his purposes. And despite our great shortcomings, he nonetheless redeems us through a new man, Jesus Christ, forgiving us of all of our sins and giving us new life so that we can all the better live for his glory and the good of each other. I wonder what you think of that. And I wonder what you think of the other narratives that are given to us, whether it's the there is no God narrative or the you're all God's narrative, do they really provide a convincing solution to what ails humanity? I would argue that through Jesus Christ, we reclaim our meaning and identity as image bearers to therefore live with confidence and hope in eternal life, thereby turned into people who can now do good for others. Let me leave you with a quote from C.S. Lewis. We started with Samuel Beckett and Dr. Who. I'll leave you with C.S. Lewis. I like Dr. Dr. Seuss. Dr. Seuss. I just don't like the way that movie ended. This is what C.S. Lewis says. You've surely heard this before. He says, There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, art, civilization, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. Politics, nations, economics, war, the stuff that just consumes us every day. C.S. Lewis says, that's like a gnat compared to your neighbor. It's like a gnat. But it is immortals. Immortal people with whom we joke, with whom we work, marry, snub, and exploit, immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. This does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn. No, we must play. But our merriment must be of that kind which exists between people who have, from the outset, taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption with the understanding that everyone is made in the image of God with identity and meaning and the possibility of redemption through Jesus Christ. And so it turns out that we are not between two darknesses. We're not between two darknesses. We're actually between two lights. In the beginning, God said, let there be light. And so history, time, and space began. And you find yourself in the domain which God has created for his glory 
and you're giving you creative capacities to serve others and to glorify him. And we are returning in the end to another light. The book of Revelation says that in the new creation, there will be a light of a kind and species that doesn't even need the sun. So we are between two lights, the light of creation and the light of eternal life. And in between, Jesus says that you should use your creative capacities to let your light so shine before others that they might glorify God who is in heaven. Let's pray. Almighty God in heaven, we give you praise for your perfect creation. We give you praise that you have stamped us with your image. We give you thanks that you've told us these things in your word. And we can reflect, therefore, on what it means to be made in your image. And what we should do with our lives. And what is right and what is wrong. And what is good, what is true, what is beautiful. What is evil, what is impure, what is sinful. We praise you for these things. We thank you as well, Lord Jesus, that you have redeemed us from our sinfulness and filled us with your Holy Spirit, that we might live for you, that we might again bring our image-bearing creative capacities into subjection under the lordship of the creator God, and so glorify him and serve our fellow men and women. I pray that the people in this room, therefore, would would see others as true image bearers. They would see themselves as image bearers and that they would understand that the only recourse to our sinfulness and death is through your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen, amen.